Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, 
Your business is always at your fingertips. Before we start, I just want to say thanks to all of you who ordered an Unmistakable Creative t-shirt. Be sure to tweet or Instagram a picture with your shirt with the hashtag Unmistakable, and we'll give you a shout out in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't picked one up yet, visit unmistakableart.com to buy one today. Now, let's get to the show. In this episode of the podcast, Fortune Senior Editor Jeff Colvin joins us to discuss what accounts for the difference between people who are mediocre and super achievers and the skills that will be essential to our success in the future. Jeff, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Shreddy. Yeah. So you and I have uh, connected uh, both via our publisher who happens to be Penguin. But what really got me interested in in your work is, is two books. The first one being Talent is Overrated, which I devoured because it was filled with so many gems and insights. And then, of course, your new book, Why Humans Are Underrated, which is, is such an interesting contrast to the, to the previous one. So uh, on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, uh, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to this unusual perspective that you have on talent and success? Well, yeah. Um, I First of all, I, you know, I've, I'm at Fortune Magazine and have been for a very long time. I have an extremely short resume. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I really, I, I've worked at Fortune. Um, I don't tell anyone, but I've been there since 1978. And wow. uh, so it's just about the only thing I've ever done. Of course, I've done many different things at Fortune during all that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been there for a, a long time. Uh, having grown up, I was born and raised in South Dakota, uh, Vermilion, South Dakota, uh, which I often think back on as an ideal I, I really, uh, in retrospect, I'm so grateful to have been born and raised there. It was, I just think, the greatest time and place to have been uh, born and raised. So it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing. Um, And uh, then, you know, went to college and moved to New York and uh, uh, pretty soon went to work for Fortune. And so, you know, after all of these years there, I've really had a chance to observe an awful lot of people, business people, leaders of various kinds, organizations, obviously, of various kinds, and had a chance to think a lot about what makes some of them so successful, most of them just mediocre, uh, some of them pretty bad. And, you know, what accounts for this difference? And so thinking about all of that, everything I've been able to observe, plus all the research that I became aware of that was being done on this question, um, I thought was just extremely interesting. And the real reason I wrote these books about the larger subject is that I do think it's extremely important for people. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm trying to do a service here, and I really believe that for people to understand the reality of these topics today is something that's going to be valuable. And so that's, that's what drove me to do these books. Mm. You know, I really love that you mentioned that you grew up in South Dakota, and I'd like to do a bit of a deeper dive into that earlier part of your story and journey and ask you about sort of moments of significance and formative experiences growing up that would ultimately lead you down this sort of path of journalism. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I strongly suspect, I mean, this would be at a kind of deep psychological level, but I strongly suspect that it was connected in part to just my knowing about my um, ancestors. My uh, grandfather had owned a printing business in Vermilion, South Dakota. Um, it, it, the business itself wasn't really a journalism business. It published a, uh, what was called a shopper. It was a, pay, a newspaper, but it was 100% advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and it published other stuff as well. But before that, as a young man, he had been a journalist. He had traveled around the country <clears throat> and written for a number of papers um, around the country. He was a very talented guy. He was also an editorial cartoonist. And he would uh, sometimes, uh, in those, especially in those early days, uh, illustrate his own articles by drawing 
um, illustrations, sometimes very funny illustrations. Um, so there was that. And then his father, my great-grandfather, uh, had founded the local newspaper in Vermilion, uh, the paper that still exists and is still published, I'm delighted to say, called The Plain Talk. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and so again, I, by the time I came along, our family had no connection with that paper anymore. But um, I suspect that all of this uh, had some effect on me. Mm. Um, I certainly had wonderful teachers, a fact that I didn't realize until, of course, I was much older and was able to think back on them and evaluate them. But uh, I, I had wonderful teachers in school. And so, uh, you know, becoming interested in uh, what I could read and in writing and so forth came pretty easily. Um, and it, I've also been struck, again, as I think back, by what a fabulous culture I was in growing up in that small town um, where the, the expectations, the values were such that education was simply important. No one ever told me, I don't think, that education was important because no one had to say it out loud. It was part of the air you breathed. And uh, that combined with, uh, as I said, wonderful teachers, um, that helped a lot, too. And so I suspect, you know, you put those things together. I happened to, to, as a little kid to love reading, and not all little kids do, but I did. You know, you put those things together. I, it, it, in retrospect, you can see the path. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a question I've asked a lot of people. Uh, you mentioned that you could see the path in retrospect. Do you think you could have seen it looking forward? Um, it's, it's hard to say. I don't particularly think so. I'm try Actually, um, you know, look, I mean, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be what every little boy wanted to be back then, you know, which was a fireman and sometimes, you know... Out there, I think maybe a cowboy as well, or something like that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, when I got a little older, and I can't remember whether I was in what the seventh or eighth grade, or maybe the ninth or tenth. Um, I took one of those tests that are supposed to indicate what you might eventually do. I think it was actually in the seventh or eighth grade. Um, and then you were, you know, you were given the results and said, well, you match up with the uh, characteristics of people who became this or that. And uh, what I remember is the two, the, the, the two future occupations that I seemed to match up, sorry, that I seemed to match up with pretty well were um, explorer and author. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. I had no idea what to make of that at the time. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I was not particularly fired up to become an explorer or an <laughs> author at that time. Honestly, sounded good, but you know, I it it seemed so far away. I didn't think much about it. Yeah. But again, you know, if I'd been trying to forecast what I became, well, uh, I haven't done a lot of uh, exploring in the literal sense. But I guess you could say that's what it journalist does yeah when one of the questions i have for you is what you learned about journalistic storytelling from growing up in a small town and then you know what did being in new york teach you about journalistic uh storytelling uh about a small town while, while being in a big city like how did those yeah. two perspectives shape the way you tell stories well um th that's a really excellent way to think about it i mean the experience of the small town growing up was simply one of telling stories and being told stories. Uh, this was a time, I mean, we were, the town was sufficiently remote at the time that we got, I think, two channels of television. And those channels were not broadcasting all the time. Uh, 
there was one or maybe two radio stations that we could get reliably. So what I'm saying is we didn't spend a lot of time with electronic media. Um, and we did spend a lot of time talking to one another and telling stories and so forth. Uh, so whatever I got from it, you know, I simply absorbed. Uh, it was all a natural process. Uh, what happened when I got to New York and went into the business of writing and journalism and so forth was that I learned about the demands of written stories, not spoken stories. And I, I, I greatly credit um, the editors who worked with me when I first joined Fortune, the standards were extremely high. They're still extremely high. Uh, but th the standards were very high. Uh, the editors would uh, devote a lot of time and energy to working on the things that I wrote back in those days. And I learned so much from them about how to express things uh, economically, succinctly, interestingly, and always to take the perspective of the reader. How does this sound? Is this doing any good? Is this of interest? Is this grabbing them? Is it boring them? Always to think from that perspective. And they enforced it. And, uh, you know, you combine those things, you know, just sort of the early uh, natural storytelling plus these stringent standards for written storytelling, you know, I, I, I am so glad that it worked out that way because the value of it uh, is more apparent to me all the time. Hmm. All right. Well, let's do this. I want to start doing a, a deeper dive into the work that you actually do. I mean, like you said, you've had sort of a front row seat to yes. uh, super achievers that most of us never get. Uh, right. You know, and I, and I love what you said about, this idea that, you know, some people are mediocre, some people are wildly successful, and of course, others are terrible. And you spend a good amount of your life studying it as what to studying what accounts for that difference. So what I'd like to do is spend a good probably the rest of our conversation uh, talking about what it is that accounts for that difference and how that's played itself out in your work and your books. Yeah. Um, you know, for the longest time, I was writing or editing fortune articles that tended to be about companies or individuals uh, and told their stories. But there was very little that I did that was about the larger principles of what made some people very successful or very valuable. Uh, and that really changed when one day I was sitting in my office there and uh, one of our writers came in, and it was Jerry Yuseem, who was with us for a number of years, a wonderful, wonderful writer, uh, who also worked on larger projects. He came in and said, you know, we're doing a, a big special package about great performance, excellent performance, um, and wonder if you would want to write something about that general topic. And so I I immediately said yes, because I had been thinking about it for a long time. And in fact, I remembered at that time, having heard years earlier, just heard, I don't think I'd read anything, I'd heard it on the radio or something, heard about a study. I didn't know who did it, didn't know much about it. I just remembered a study about violinists and what made some of them very good. And that probably resonated with me because I had been, you know, I have played the violin since I was a little boy. And so I remembered that study and I thought, well, okay, here's a chance for me, A, to dig up that research, see what other research has been done, and then think about this really interesting topic. So that's what I did. And the result was an article that then became the foundation of the Talent is Overrated book. I wrote an article for Fortune, uh, discovered that the um, 
study I remember, the study about the violinists, was much more important than I realized. It was by a man named Anders Ericsson, a name you will know, mm-hmm. um, who turns out to be the guy who has uh, done the most important research on great performance. And that study about the violinists was, in a way, the foundational piece of research. It was an extremely detailed study about violin students at an academy, a music academy in Berlin. And the uh, tremendously deep research that that Anders Ericsson and his uh, colleagues did into the violin students there. And this was the work that resulted in the term deliberate practice, the definition of deliberate practice, and the hypothesis that this was actually what all the world's great performers would have in common. Now, they didn't make that claim in the paper. They said it's a study of violinists. But this was the beginning of much more research by him and many others um, into great performance in people in all kinds of disciplines. And the idea began to come through that there was very little evidence for uh, inborn ability, innate ability to do something fairly specific. And, you know, like uh, when we say someone is uh, a natural tennis player, you know, a born leader, um, a born pilot, whatever, that the researchers increasingly came to believe that that simply didn't exist. And that this concept of deliberate practice, which has a very specific definition, but this concept of deliberate practice was really um, the foundation of it all, was really the, 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 the commonality among world, the world's great performers. So I wrote this article for Fortune, and I received a response such as I don't think I had ever received for anything I'd ever uh, written before. I heard from lots and lots of people, people uh, when I was at conferences and so forth, people who didn't know me would come up and thank me for that article. Some people told me that they had read the article to their children. Now, I can tell you, you can write an awful lot of articles for Fortune and never have anybody come up to you and say, I read this article to my children. But that's what started to happen with this. And so that's when I realized there's more to say, and I should probably write a book about it. And so I made that proposal uh, to uh, the folks at the portfolio imprint at Penguin, and they said, go for it, and I did. And so that's where that came from. Well, let's do this. I think the the thing that people are really going to want to know is how deliberate practice is defined and more importantly, how they start to implement it into their lives. Because if talent is truly overrated, doesn't that mean great performance technically uh, or theoretically is accessible to every one of us? Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. Uh, and I should stress, first of all, that in that in the title, talent is overrated. I'm talking about talent in a fairly specific sense. Mm-hmm. We, we all use that word uh, kind of loosely to mean many different things. I mean talent in the sense of an innate gift, something that you bring with you into this world that enables you to be particularly good at some specific skill. Now, it needs to be said also that um, in skills involving physical attributes. Obviously, there are things people are born with that are a big help. So just to state the obvious, you know, if you're five feet tall, you're never going to be very successful in professional basketball. (laughs) And if you're seven feet tall, you're never going to be an Olympic gymnast. Yeah. And, you know, this. so sure, you know, people who are, who have particular physical attributes will have an easier time uh, going into some physical activities. Nonetheless, I I think the the general point is clear. So, yeah, you're right. What it says is great performance is available to all of us because 
it appears that deliberate practice is the key. So what is it? What specifically is it? Because one thing I learned was that what I do out on the driving range at the golf course is a pathetic example of deliberate practice. (laughs) Just not even close. So here's what it is. It is an activity that is not performance. You're not really doing what you do. It's, It's preparation. So it's not really work. But it's not really fun either. It's hard. It is designed to push you just beyond your current ability to do the thing you're working on. It doesn't try to push you way beyond your current ability because then you're simply lost. And it doesn't allow you to perform within your current ability because then you don't grow. So it is constantly pushing you just beyond your current ability. Now, as you get better, your current level of ability will change, and so your deliberate practice will have to change. And that's another important characteristic. It is designed for you at this moment in your development. And so frequently it helps to have someone else designing it for you because they can observe you. But in any case, it is designed for you and not someone else at this moment of your development. It can be repeated at high volume. This turns out to be very important. The researchers at first just observed that that was the case, that people did repeat it at high volume. Later, uh, brain researchers discovered that repeating an activity over and over really does change. It causes physical changes in the brain. Uh, It causes certain neural pathways uh, to become stronger. Um, And if you really get into it, there's a substance in your brain called myelin. And uh, continuous repetition, high repetition of a particular activity builds up the myelin along these neural pathways in your brain and makes them stronger. And so there's a good reason that high volume repetition is important. And then one more thing, which is you're getting continual feedback. You can't get better if you don't know how you're doing. So you have to be getting continual feedback. Now, in some activities, that feedback is sort of natural. There are ways, you know, if you're um, giving a speech or something like that, you're getting feedback from the audience. You're telling at all times whether they like it or not. There are other things you might do, like um, swinging a golf club, where you can see whether the shot was good or bad, but you can't observe your swing very well. Uh, You're doing it, so you can't see it. In many activities, it's very helpful to have a teacher, a coach, a mentor, someone who can observe you and give you that feedback and who can also help you design your deliberate practice. That's why the world's greatest golfers still go to teachers, to coaches. They need someone who can observe them from the outside. So that's what deliberate practice is. Mm -hmm. What the great performers do is they do that, for a long time. And in fact, your capacity to do that increases the more you do it. It's very demanding. Uh And in fact, the great performers will say it's most demanding on a mental level. You're focused so intensely on getting better that you frequently become mentally exhausted before you're physically exhausted, no matter what it is. Mm. Um, But your capacity to do it increases And then the great performers will often do this two, three, four hours a day, day after day, for years on end. And it's not easy. It's very demanding. But, of course, if it were easy, it wouldn't distinguish the greatest performers from everybody else. So that's what they do. And it's available to any of us. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Okay, so that raises uh, several questions. Yes. Uh, knowing what we know about this, why then do we still have these sort of three tiers of average performance, incredibly successful performance and absolutely terrible performance? Right. Like why does that still exist knowing that we, we <laughs> being aware of this? Right. Uh, it, it's a great question, right? And it demands to be asked. Um, there are a few reasons for it. First of all, and this is kind of deep, and it's, but it's important. I've discovered, as I've gone around talking about this topic, I've discovered, somewhat to my surprise, that I run into plenty of people who don't like this message. They resist it. They think there's something wrong. They don't like hearing it. And for a while, I wondered why on earth anybody would not like this message. But it began then to dawn on me, and I've asked people about it and talked to people about it. Some people actually don't like the implication here, which is what you identified at the very beginning, that it says our performance, our success at doing something is in our hands. 
It's available to all of us, but that means it's up to us. It's in our own hands. Uh, if you believe the opposite, if you believe that it depends on a natural gift, and then if you're not very good at something, uh, you can let yourself off the hook very easily. You can say, well, I just don't have the gift. You know, I just didn't come into this world with an ability to do such and such. But if you're told that it isn't a gift, that it's all a matter of what you have chosen, uh, you can't get yourself off the hook. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people actually don't like that. Um, I should mention also that I think a lot of people don't like it because in a sense, it causes them to lose hope. If they believe in the natural gift explanation, then they can always hope that someday they, or sometimes their children, will find that natural gift that they have. You know, that they've got it there, they just haven't found it yet. But if they find it, then success will be quick and easy. Uh, and, and they hate losing that hope. Well, the reality, of course, is that, yeah, you lose the hope, but you gain the opportunity, you gain the possibility to become extremely good, much better than you are, if you want, which, you know, is, a, in my opinion, a wonderful thing. But anyway, that, so that's one reason. It, there are people who simply don't like this message. Uh, another reason that so many people are not particularly good performers is that we're not giving anything away for free here. You can do it, but it's hard work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just don't want to do it. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It's not bad. I mean, when you, especially once you become an adult and you're working and you're supporting a family, perhaps, uh, you've got a lot of obligations. And it's a funny thing. The nature of work in most of our institutions is that we allot no time for practice. Mm -hmm. We expect people who work to go out there and perform, to, to do the work itself all day, every day. And in most institutions, if you want to really apply these deliberate practice principles, then you're going to have to do it on your own time. And yeah. you may not have much of your own time. And so, you know, you, you can't blame people for being too exhausted after being done with their real jobs for the day that they just don't want to do this. Uh -huh. And that's fine. I can well understand it. Um, and you probably noticed the, the other uh, factor here, which is why is it that most companies – most organizations don't include time for deliberate practice. In fact, they don't even really uh, pay any attention to the principles. Well, we could get into that, but the fact is they don't. Right. So that's another reason that, you know, we just have an awful lot of mediocre performers and a few really great ones. It's funny that you mentioned that because that was going to be the one question I asked from the book itself, which which we'll get to in just a second. You know, I this raises a lot of questions for me uh, as somebody who has been fired from pretty much every real job I've been at, and now <laughs> you know getting to write a book with a publisher. Right. Clearly, I don't have an issue with motivation. I don't think I would get to the point of Penguin saying yes if they saw I had no motivation. I agree. So what that question brings up in my mind is. Is it possible that talent and environment could be mismatched? Like, why would it be that I couldn't figure out, you know, hitting a stride until now at 37, and yet the earlier part of my career would not indicate at all that I was destined for anything? In fact, a, a boss told me, you don't seem like a person who's interested in controlling your own destiny. Huh. So I'm just really curious, uh, you know, based on the perspective that you have, yeah. what leads to something like that? And is, is it possible that talent and environment get mismatched? It is absolutely possible. And this gets to another question that turns out to be really important, which is uh, sometimes it does take time for people to discover what truly engages them. Some would call it their passion. 
but to find what it is that truly revs their engine and really gets them engaged. And the reason this is so important is, as I said, deliberate practice is not easy. Uh, in fact, frequently, it's not fun. Um, and there's a good reason for that. Remember, you're constantly being pushed just beyond your current abilities. What that means is, by definition, you are constantly going to be making mistakes and having failures because you're trying to do stuff you can't quite do. And so this is not something that people go into because they think it's fun. It's something they do because they are one way or another driven to do it. And some people simply don't find that passion. They don't find that drive um, for quite a while. In the book, I tell the story of David Ogilvy, the man who became arguably the greatest or one of the greatest advertising people in the, in the 20th century. Um, he did all kinds of other things before he figured that out. He was a, an opinion pollster. He worked for the Gallup organization earlier in his career. Uh, he had a kind of gentleman's farm in Pennsylvania for a while. He sold stoves door-to-door -door in Scotland. He worked in a restaurant kitchen. He did a million things that would leave you, lead you to say, he's never going to amount to anything. Mm -hmm. And then he got into the advertising business and discovered that it totally absorbed him, totally engaged him. And so until he stumbled into that environment, um, you know, it's just what you say. There was a mismatch. Hmm. Uh, he, you know, he hadn't found what he wanted to do. And it's not to say he was great at it from day one. He wasn't. But he was interested in it. And that made the difference. Okay, so that actually raises uh, questions for me about our education system yes. and its current form. You know, I, I, my ongoing joke is that I am a failed byproduct of our education system. Uh, <laughs> and I went to I went to a pretty good school. I went to Berkeley as an undergrad. I got an MBA from Pepperdine. Oh wow! And truth be told, my thinking around this never aligned with what you're talking about right. until I realized I'd built a house of cards right. at the age of thirty. And I'm just really interested in hearing what you have to say about our current state of education, which I think will actually make a, a really nice transition to talking about humans are underrated. Yeah. Um, it's uh, very interesting what has happened in education, um, which is, well, a number of things. But one of the great things about the education system for a long time was, and to some extent still is, but not so much, was that it did introduce people to a lot of different possibilities, uh, you know, things that they might be interested in. It really opened the world to them and showed them things that they wouldn't have found in their daily life uh, working or in the family or something. And the, the whole idea was that you were supposed to find, you were supposed to acquire basic skills for sim simply operating in a modern economy, but you were also supposed to find the things that engaged you. And you wouldn't be good at them right away, but you'd be interested. And what has happened, largely with the rising cost of uh, college education, is that people have stopped regarding college education in that way and have begun to regard it as an investment that must be justified by the return on investment. In other words, it becomes a purely and fairly immediately economic topic. Mm -hmm. um, so increasingly we so we see all these lists of what are the 10 top paying majors mm -hmm. uh, from colleges and the 10 lowest paying majors and so forth uh, which colleges are the best buy um, you know will, will lead you to the highest paying jobs for the uh, least cost and in my view 
this is a really, really unfortunate development. Uh, college, as it should be, uh, isn't this desperate race that I see so many students engaged in now to get the right internship, to get the right credentials, and then land the right job. Um, it's supposed to open you up to a lot of possibilities. And by the way, along the journey there, it also is supposed to just enrich your life um, by showing you all these things, by introducing you to all these subjects and ways of thinking. It makes your life better and richer every day of your life for as long as you live. And that part of it is given almost no value at all anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes, I think, more and more difficult for people to find what really engages them. And as a result, you know, then they may end up doing stuff that doesn't and they won't, you know, then become as, as good and frankly as fulfilled as they could be. Yeah, I mean, we could probably spend all hour talking about that. Yeah, I think probably so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's do this. I, I think that that actually makes a perfect setup to talk uh, about careers and the modern world, especially you know the, the relevance and, and the message of, of humans are underrated. Uh, you know, we just had Zoltan Eastvan here, who's a transhumanist candidate for president of the United States, which it was quite entertaining, and he talked a lot about this idea that eventually all jobs are going to be gone. And, you know, we talked about universal basic income and a lot of different really interesting things. And, you know, it was, I think it was fitting and, and uh, serendipitous that your book just happened to be the next thing I read after that. Um, so I'd love to do a dive into the principles uh, in Humans Are Underrated and talk about, you know, what is it that the future holds for us when so many of our jobs are, are really being replaced by technology? And what are we going to need to be able to do that apparently robots can't. Right. Uh, well, this is what everyone's asking, and it's so striking that it's a hot topic, a very hot topic now. I think because technology is beginning to do things that, frankly, are so amazing, that are so close to things we thought technology would never do. They are things we thought technology would never do. And at the same time, so many people, uh, especially in the developed world, are having a hard time economically. Um, pay isn't increasing very much. Um, more and more people can find only part-time jobs, not full-time when that they want full-time. Uh, and so you start to wonder, so, okay, how to think about this. Uh, the first thing is to look at what the technology can do today and to remember that as mind-blowing as it is right now, the technology is, on average, getting about twice as capable every two years. Um, Moore's Law won't last forever, but there are other things in technology, other developments in technology that even after Moore's Law will continue to increase the capability of technology um, at a very impressive rate. So as good as the technology is today, it'll be twice as capable in two years and then twice that in two more years and so on. Um, the technology is getting twice as capable every two years. We humans are not. Okay, we're, we're getting a little better. That's what talent is overrated was about. And we can get better. But our rate of improvement slows down with time. Each extra increment is a little smaller than the one before. Whereas the technology just keeps doubling. And so it is going to be possible for the technology eventually to do almost anything that we can think of, plus things we haven't even thought of. Uh, so that, that's the first reality that just 
has to be accepted. I mean, the self-driving car is a great example. It's the one everyone talks about. But it's a great example because you don't have to go back very many years to see very intelligent people writing that driving a car requires so many split-second judgments, involves absorbing so much data from so many sources that it would be very, very difficult for technology ever to be able to drive a car. Well, it now drives cars and does it better than we do. Uh, we talk about surgical robots, which are not really robots right now. They are power tools, basically, that surgeons can use themselves. But research is being done uh, to, to develop autonomous robots that will do things, at the moment, things like identify and cut out cancerous tissue entirely autonomously. And they will go on from there. I mean, I was talking the other day with a, an entrepreneur in, the, in that field who had sold his company. He said, look, in 10 to 20 years, we will have autonomous surgical robots operating on people. Okay, so the, the first thing is to accept that that kind of thing is just going to go on and get more and more uh, astounding. How then will we humans add value? What, I do believe we'll always be able to find some kind of work to do, but is it going to be high value work? Mm -hmm. is, it going to, is it going to be something that will enable us to earn a standard of living as good as what we have now and ideally even better year after year? And so that was, that was what I set out trying to find. I said, okay, the technology actually is going to be able to do whatever we ask. So what is it that we humans will demand be done by humans, even if a machine could do it also? And that's, that's then what I try to identify in the book. And that's what then most of the book is about. So what specifically uh, were sort of the, the key takeaways uh, that you know, people can learn from? The, the key takeaways are this is all about human-to-human -human interaction. The high-value skills as the economy evolves are the skills – of interacting with other people. And the reason for that is that these are the abilities that we developed as we evolved as human beings. The ability to interact with other people is what enabled us to live in groups as, as we were becoming human beings, it enabled us to live in groups and the ability to live in groups is what enabled us to succeed as a species because the groups are much better at finding and hunting game, at protecting one another. This turned out to be the critically important uh, ability in our evolution. We are fundamentally social beings. Aristotle was right. We are social animals and that is, our, that is our deepest nature. So when we interact with one another, things happen between us that we don't even realize are happening. Uh, when, if we are interacting person to, in person, face to face, you know, the pupils in our eyes adjust based on what's going on in the pupils in the other person's eyes. We have no idea that's happening, but it's happening. And we are bonding as a result. We unconsciously mimic one another's postures. Uh, all kinds of things happen that we don't even know about that are bonding us as human beings, enabling us to understand one another. And so the abilities of human interaction, being able to, to, to deal with, well, I'll get to the specifics, 
in a, just a second. That's where the high value uh, skills are. Mm. And the most foundational one, and this is what people I think really need to take away, is empathy. And empathy isn't just feeling someone else's pain. Empathy is the ability to discern what another person is thinking or feeling and to respond in some appropriate way. Uh, some people are very good at it. Some are not very good at it. But this leads to all the other interpersonal skills, collaborating, storytelling, solving problems together, building relationships. Those are going to be the high-value skills. And so, as a practical matter, people will want to ask, okay, what about this job I have right now? Does it demand fairly deep human interaction? If it does not, then that job is probably going away. Hmm. Again, driving is the good example. Driving, I guess it demands some human interaction between you and other drivers, but it's, not, it's pretty mechanical interaction. It doesn't demand anything deep. That job is going away. There are still plenty of jobs in the economy that don't demand much in the way of deep human interaction. They're going away. And so what we need to be sure is that, A, the work we're doing requires human and rewards human interaction. And then, B, we need to realize that however good we are, we can get better. And we'll probably want to do that. That is a really different way of looking at skills and economic success from anything we've ever had before. Wow. Uh, so when these big companies like the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world, uh, yes. you know, they're looking at things like this. I mean, when you see it from that perspective, I mean, how, how does it affect business overall? I mean, we've kind of talked about it from the individual perspective. I mean, what is this going to do for the future of organizations? Well, um, a lot. I mean, we're already beginning to see a fairly radical change in the kinds of people that businesses employ. They are able to replace more and more people with machines, and that's not going to stop. These decisions, we talk a lot, people like to opine about the moral implications of this, but these decisions have always been made on economic grounds, and they will continue to be. And so, you know, we have the debate about the morality of a minimum wage, and should it be $15 an hour, and we have laws being passed that will it to be $15 an hour. Well, a business owner simply regards that as reality that must be dealt with. And so what we are seeing and are going to see more is people who used to make less than that are more likely now to be replaced by machines. I mean, in fast food restaurants, the people who take your order at the counter uh, are not doing a job that requires deep human interaction and they're going to be replaced and in many cases are already being replaced by kiosks for example uh, so we're going to see companies doing that but at the same time they are realizing the importance of interpersonal skills in other jobs and so for the people who do those jobs uh, we see companies actually working on improving people's interpersonal skills and making sure that those people have an opportunity to use their interpersonal skills. Um, it is, you know, and this has, you know, people say, well, what about the technical skills? What about engineering? You know, all the eight of the top 10 paying uh, college majors are engineering jobs. Aren't they still going to be valuable? Well, this, there's a very important distinction to make. An engineer who is technically adept but can only sit in the cubicle and write code or whatever it is, is not going to be a high-value engineer. The world is producing more and more of those. 
especially in high-quality universities around the world. Uh, the, the world is starting to produce lots of engineers who can do engineering. The work is being commoditized. The high-value engineers, and I have been told this by employers, the high-value engineers are those who can empathize, that is, they can understand the customer's experience with whatever he or she is engineering, so they can create a better customer experience. The, the engineer who can collaborate with other team members to solve problems, to come up with new creative solutions that no individual is going to come up with. The engineers who can do those things are the high-value engineers of the future. So just having the degree is not going to do the job for you. Hmm. Wow. What are your thoughts on this whole idea uh, of, of a universal basic income? Because almost all jobs are going away. I mean, is, is the future of work going to look drastically different than it does right now? Uh, it might. And m my own view on it is that it's too far in the future for us to talk about with any confidence at all. Uh -huh. um, it's, it's important, it's humbling and important to remember that we can never foresee the jobs that the economy will create down the road. Uh, you know, even when the Internet became available to us and people for the first time were sitting in front of their computers able to get online, we still at that point did not foresee that there would be jobs for search engine optimizers and mobile app writers and social media managers and so forth. No one could have foreseen that. And so, you know, I, I remain very uh, cautious about predicting what's going to happen in the world of work. We, we really don't know. But the idea that the scenario you're talking about could happen is at least becoming something that mainstream people will talk about. And that is really, really new. So the idea that technology, advancing technology overall increases employment and raises living standards has been correct for the past 250 years. And it is absolutely orthodox economics. What's striking now is that we see mainstream economists and technologists, without regard to politics, there are people on the left and people on the right, all making the same observation, that maybe that orthodoxy doesn't hold anymore. That just maybe technology has begun to eliminate jobs faster than it is creating new ones. And... All I can say is, yes, that might be so. And that, that by itself is a fundamental change. And it's also important to realize something I haven't seen said elsewhere, which is we don't have to wait for technology to eliminate 90% of jobs for this to be uh, profoundly uh, changing. All we need is for the balance to tip a little bit. Up till now, technology has created more jobs than it has eliminated. It, it does both, but the balance has tipped in favor of creating jobs. All that, all that needs to happen is for the balance to tip a little bit the other way. Start eliminating jobs faster than it creates new ones. And we are in a fundamentally new world, one that we have no idea, we, that we have no experience with. We have no idea how to deal with it. And that could be happening. There is evidence that that could be happening. Sounds like another book for you to write. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the next one because I, I uh, deliberately didn't look too far into the future with this one. We've got more than enough to worry about between now and whenever that might happen. Yeah. But that's that is the next step down the road that we have to think about 
Wow. Well, Jeff, this has been really, really interesting and, and just fascinating and, and thought provoking. Uh, so I want to finish with my last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. Yes. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. Um, I think it is themselves. In other words, I think being, if, if a person wants to be unmistakable, I, I, I humbly offer advice because it's just my view, but my advice would be, be relentlessly yourself. It's not always that easy in the modern world, but to be just relentlessly yourself. It's, it's the best way I know for anybody, and maybe the only way, for anybody to be unmistakable. Well, uh, like I said, this has been just fascinating and riveting, and uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your insights and your story. And for everybody listening, I'll link up Jeff's books in the show notes. I can't recommend them highly enough. You're very kind, Srini. Thank you. Thank you for asking wonderful questions and for inviting me to talk about this. You can tell I feel fairly passionate about it, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.